Welcome to the Dylan Taunts Podcast. Hello and welcome to What Is It About Bob Dylan? I'm here with Grayley Hearn. Grayley Hearn is a professor and chair of English at Xavier University in Cincinnati. He's the author of Dreams and Dialogues in Dylan's Time Out of Mind, published by Anthem Press in 2021 and now available in paperback. He is also the author of books on Samuel Beckett and Don DeLillo, and many articles and book chapters, including several on Dylan. Each year, he teaches a first-year seminar on Dylan, and he is currently working on a book studying all of Dylan's concerts in the Cincinnati area. Welcome, Grayley. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And this time, we're actually together in Cincinnati, so this is pretty Welcome. Exciting. Welcome to the Queen City of the West. <laughs> <laughs> so, Grayley, what is it about Bob Dylan? What is it about Bob Dylan? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot I love uh, about Bob Dylan, and it's certainly he's intellectually stimulating, but I thought about this question, and really it's more of a heart answer. I love him. I love Dylan. I, I, I hear certain songs, and it, my heart starts to melt. I look at the album cover of Highway 61 Revisited, and my heart skips a beat like I have a schoolgirl crush. I love the man. I love his work. I love his music. Uh, I, I love the way he makes me think, but more than that, I love the way his voice, uh, his words, his perspective makes me feel, uh, how does it feel? <laughs> it feels like love. It feels like love. That's beautiful. Maybe I'll edit this in later. Yeah. I asked, we did a little sound check and I asked Grady to say something. He did a beautiful recitation <laughs> of the first verse of Tangled Up in Blue. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. Made it sound like, like poetry rather than lyrics, actually. <laughs> It was gorgeous. When did you start really first getting into Dylan, listening to Dylan, learning about Dylan? Yeah, so this is odd. I shared the story with Erin Callahan recently, and she had a similar sort of experience. A lot of my first encounters with Dylan were on the page. Right after his uh, 1985 lyrics book came out, my mother bought it for me for a Christmas present. So here I am, I guess I'm 15, 16 years old, uh, and I read all of these lyrics of Dylan. Some of them, you know, don't hold up that well on the page, uh, but some blew me away, and some of the liner notes as well. And so a lot of my first love for Dylan was a sort of literary love. Um, it was only after then that I started, you know, I probably the greatest hits tape was the first thing, kind of sampler platter uh, of Dylan. And I know Highway 61 Revisited was the first album album I had and completely fell for that, listened to it over and over. And then uh, I went to college, and that's when I really started getting into Dylan. Um, I started filling in some of the blanks, Free Will and Bob Dylan, the times they are a change, and, uh, and his righteous anger lit a spark for me. I, I really loved that, uh, that uh, protest uh, phase of Dylan's early career, uh, but also his, you know, heart-wrenching love songs. And I worked with a woman at the bookstore at the University of Tennessee, and she made tapes of Blood on the Tracks and Desire for me, and oh, those blew me away. And so then I was off, and my sophomore year uh, is when Oh Mercy came out. So that was my first experience with falling in love with a brand new Bob Dylan album. So that felt like mine, Oh Mercy. Um, and of course, there I was in 1989, uh, I, and thinking this may be the last 
Bob Dylan album of original music I'll ever get, so I really wanted to immerse myself in it. And of course, that's comical now to think that that was still the first half of his career. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you know, I've just uh, I've learned to appreciate, if not always, love every single phase and voice and and uh, uh, album of Dylan's. But it's just such an enormous, impactful body of work. Um, and and it, it's the gift that keeps giving, you know. It's the sort of thing that all these years later, I still find things I've never heard by Bob Dylan, uh, or hear things in familiar songs that suddenly defamiliarize them. And of, often, it's Bob Dylan's own live performances that have that effect, right? That he does something completely unexpected uh, with a song, and suddenly I realize I've never really heard the song before. Uh, so. Uh, there just aren't that many artists that have so many different successful phases and so many different talents and can not only keep producing amazing work, but keep reproducing, reinventing their own work the way he does. Uh, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to be the theme. <laughs> that is the theme. No, that's great. It, it's funny you mentioned, you know, Oh Mercy is an early, you know, in Shadow Kingdom, right? It's the early works. Yeah, and there's a song. Yeah, I can't remember <clears throat> which song is it. Do you remember? Um, which uh, it's um, all of all mercy. Right, right, right. It's um, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's been a while since we'll I've edit that out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tell us a little bit about your your um, your recent book on mm. on uh, time out of mind. Just you know, give us a, a brief preview or a review. By the way, I just ordered my copy. Everyone, nice. run out, get it. The paperback is very affordable. Yes, unlike the hardback. <laughs> so I'm glad that real human beings maybe can now read the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's see, how did it start? Um, I was fortunate to have uh, applied for and received a sabbatical for the fall of 2020. Now, at the time, I didn't know that a global pandemic was going to break out. As it turned out, there could not have been a better semester to not be teaching than the fall of 2020. So I dodged, uh, dodged uh, that, that bullet. Um, but I knew I was going to be working on Bob Dylan. But my proposal was for three separate freestanding articles that maybe had certain thematic links and therefore might eventually form the nucleus of a book. But then I happened to be teaching a Bob Dylan class in the spring, and when everything over, you know, during the spring shut down and we had to immediately transition to remote education, and I had to create all these online shells through Canvas uh, for my course. And so in the second half of the semester, we were getting to time out of mind, and now I was having to commit a lot of my thoughts to uh, to these Canvas pages, to type them out, and to think up discussion questions that we could have remotely. And the more I delved into time out of mind creating these, these uh, web pages, the more uh, I started to notice things I hadn't noticed before, or the more I started to articulate for myself ideas I had had for a long time that lay dormant, but now were really starting to excite me. And I started to realize, I think I could do a whole series of articles just on time out of mind. And then I started uh, working on that, taking, taking notes and, and uh, drafting and realizing, this is a book. I could do a whole book on this. 
so so uh, in a short amount of time, that one year, I wrote the whole book, and it came out in 2021, and now the paperback is out. The book, what is the book? It's called Dreams and Dialogues in Dylan's Time Out of Mind. Let's do the dream part first. One of the ideas I had in re-listening for the thousandth time to Time Out of Mind, an album that I've always cherished, uh, and it came out when I was working on my dissertation on Samuel Beckett, and so it was another one of those mind-blowing college experiences where Dylan became the soundtrack of my life for a brief period. I started to notice the recurrence of dream imagery and dream references in songs on the album, but also in songs left off the album, songs recorded during the Time Out of Mind sessions, but that later became available through uh, Telltale Signs, that bootleg series. And I started to conceptualize the album as a series of dreams, as uh, the wanderings now, not of Uh, of a physical landscape, but wanderings across the minds and thoughts and fears and desires and um, frustrations of this dreamer. And just like dreams, you know, you don't have to be an artist, you don't have to be a Sigmund Freud to know firsthand what dreams are like, they're weird, right? You can see that they are made up of the stuff of our experiences, but they uh, aren't, aren't realistic in that sense. Things morph, things change, things that didn't happen uh, but are a product of our fears and our desires work their way into these fantasy manifestations. And I just saw so much of that playing itself out in these songs. These songs about a lost wanderer who's searching for some lover who he feels betrayed him and that he wants to catch up with her, uh, up with her, but what's he going to do when he catches her? It's not clear. He, he wants to be back with her, but there's also a sense in other songs that he wants to punish her. And so I started to uh, think of it in terms of dreams. All right, dialogues. There's a whole lot of intertextuality in Dylan. It's one of the things I love most about him, that he's so well-read, uh, he's so well-versed, not just in all forms of uh, American and global music, but he's a very literary artist as well. And so his work is always filled with these allusions and sometimes really deep intertextual dialogues. And I started noticing, first I started noticing how much uh, the tradition of murder ballads seemed to inform Time Out of Mind. And that should come as no surprise. I mean, Dylan, who's schooled uh, in folk music and murder ballads are an important tradition within uh, that that music, but Dylan had especially right before Time Out of Mind reimmersed himself in that work with Good as I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, and I started to think of Time Out of Mind as a kind of extension of that. Maybe even the third part of a trilogy, you could think of it in that terms of now original murder ballads. You know, he's not coming right out and being explicit about it, and yet you start looking at this sinister subtext in a lot of these songs and stringing them together. And it really does start to feel like a dreamer who is fantasizing his way into the kinds of narratives we associate with murder ballads. Uh, so there was that. And that's, that's essentially the first two chapters of the book are, are establishing that dream context, uh, that dream framework for looking at the album, the intertextual dialogues, and starting then with uh, intertextual dialogues with murder ballads. Then 
But just like dreams, dreams can work in different layers, and they don't have to be uh, linear and narrative, and they, don't, uh, they aren't bound to strict logic. Things can change and morph. And so I take the same body of work and look at it from two other angles. One angle being religious allegory, because there are uh, an enormous number of re religious references uh, in, in, well, in much of Dylan's work, but it's there in Time Out of Mind as well. And then the final chapter, Race in America. Uh, I think that it's not just the murder ballad tradition that Dylan was re-immersing himself in through Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, but he's also starting to adopt seeing songs from an African-American perspective, and there are a lot of references that are not contemporary references in Time Out of Mind, but feel much older. Um, in fact, uh, one of the musicians who worked on the Time Out of Mind session said that it's Mark Twain stuff, it's Civil War. And I started to think about that and think about some of these themes of a kind of fugitive on the run, trying to break these change and pursuing a woman, but maybe now more of a sort of allegorical sense of pursuing freedom, and started to think almost like fugitive slave narratives uh, as a way that one could string together some of these songs in an interesting way, a yet another intertextual dialogue by Dylan. So that's a long answer to a simple question, but um, I think there's a lot going on in Time Out of Mind. And though I don't presume to have, you know, this is not the key to all mythologies. I don't claim to have now solved the riddle, this is what Time Out of Mind means. Each of these chapters looks at it from a different angle. Um, but I, 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 I think it's uncanny once you start examining the album from those angles, just how much evidence you can find within the songs on the album and those uh, recorded around the same time, uh, the outtakes, that reinforce those, those three ways of reading uh, the, no the novel, <laughs> the, uh, the album. That's, a, that's an interesting slip you just had there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, <laughs> yeah. that's really intriguing. <laughs> yeah. There might be something there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, conceiving of the album as a, as a, as a novel. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that, excellent. Thank you. That was, mm -hmm. that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to, to reading this book. You, you talked about when you, you, you first encountered um, O Mercy, right? Yeah. And yeah. then you talked about your first encountering of Time Out of Mind. How did you receive it, though? I mean, how did, how did you think about it? Because it was a weird time, right? Yeah. He hadn't done any original work since Under the Red Sky, almost a decade. He, he comes out, he had just had that near death experience. Yeah. Um, of course, the album was recorded before them, but, you know, from the perspective of the audience, he has a near-death experience, and soon after, this album comes out, and it's very different. What, yeah. what did you think about it? I have to say I loved it from the start. I, I know a lot of people have never liked Time Out of Mind, though they're in the minority. They're a vocal minority among Dylanologists, right, uh, who think that Daniel Lanois just completely uh, perverted Dylan's sound and distorted it, and I disagree with that. I mean, if 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 I had to choose between Daniel Lanois never producing a Bob Dylan album or Daniel Lanois producing every single Bob Dylan album, you can put me in the latter camp. <laughs> uh, I, I I think Lanois makes some really uh, wonderful uh, contributions to Dylan's sound and makes it complex and and in, adds these 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 sonic layers I, I i just i mean i know there's a lot of tension but i think it's creative conflict between them anyway i'm off uh off on a divergent path there um i i liked it from the start um 
first, it felt like a gift. Once again, I had sort of written Dylan off and thought, well, what a, what a great run he had, uh, but it sounds like it's over now. You know, I thought that, that uh, Dylan had, had a great run, but it had come to an end. And then I, you know, like everyone, heard the stories about how he was in, very sick and in the hospital and it could be fatal. And so I thought not, not only uh, has Dylan's career come to an end, but we may be losing the man himself. And then not only does he recover, but we get this album. And yes, like you said, the album was recorded before, but we didn't know that at the time. And it felt at the time uh, like this uh, almost, you know, Lazarus has returned from the grave and given us these messages from the great beyond, right? And Dylan's voice was so dark and eerie, and the whole thing was, was cut from the same sort of variations of this dark cloth. And um, I just thought it was fascinating. I thought, I've never heard a Bob Dylan album that sounded like this, and that's a good thing. This is the right album for him to be putting out. Uh, I thought it was substantial artistic achievement from the, from the start. Uh, I mean, I don't love every single song as much as some of the, uh, you know, there are certain real, I think, masterpieces on there. And some songs that I wouldn't call filler, but they're not as substantial, and yet they serve their function uh, within the larger framework of, of the album. And so I loved it from the start. Now, I knew not everyone did, and I didn't have to kind of think of that abstractly. I would play the album sometimes to friends of mine who were Dylan fans, and they're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm into this. Let's listen to Highway 61 instead. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, but the other thing that stood out to me from the start was a kind of dark sense of humor in there, you know, and not even always, not in the sense of the jokes that, that would become more prominent on the next album, Love and Theft, which is a very funny album, but just the way he would deliver certain lines. It cracked me up every time. Uh, he would say, I've been to London and I've been to Gay Paris. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious the way that he... I mean, especially in the midst of such a dark song and then throwing gags like that. I just loved it. Loved, loved it from the start. And, and my appreciation has only deepened since then. What people might not know is that Grayley and I have actually known each other quite a while, probably a good yeah. 10 years now. Yeah. Um, and not through Dylan circles. We know no. each other through other uh, academic circles. Um, so I have known and followed Grayley's writings, his scholarship for many years. I've heard you give many papers yeah. Yeah. Um, at, at the Comparative Drama Conference mm -hmm. and other places. And um, I've certainly read your, your work on Dylan. You're a prolific writer from my perspective. You have a long list of articles and books <laughs> and yeah. lots of conference papers. Um, do you write creatively at all? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, no would be the short answer. Uh, I mean, I've never, well, not since high school. I, I wrote some, I tried my hand at writing some plays in high school, but, but since then I've never written poetry or drama or, or fiction. But... Um, I appreciate what you say there about the the writing and the. I mean, I, I I do write a lot. It is a thing that I genuinely love to do. I mean, often academics do it because they have to or to try and you know earn tenure or a promotion uh, and you know the whole publish or perish uh, mandate uh, that we we live under. And and so I know what that's like, but. 
but increasingly I have gravitated toward writing about things I genuinely love and therefore it's a pleasure. I look forward to opportunities to write. Um, it's, it's the gift I give myself for doing the hard stuff I don't like is that, well, if I get it done, then I can spend some time writing. Um, and when you, when you ask if I've done creative writing, I haven't, but I, I do, um, I do very much value writing as a craft. And I think that over the years, especially as I gravitated more toward Dylan, I I feel a sense of discovering or recovering my true voice as as a writer, uh, that I feel more and more the stuff I write sounds like the way I speak, sounds like uh, the way I view the world, and that whatever that early phase in one's scholarly career when you're you're trying to imitate people you admire, and it's kind of like Dylan, right? <laughs> the, the, you're almost inevitably derivative early on because you're still figuring out how one does this for a living, how one writes professionally. And so you, in, you end up imitating uh, others. And, and I think more and more, if you continue to want to do this, you, you aren't writing to please others, but to, uh, to be true to your own voice. And I think it also helps, you know, to meet people like you, Jim, or Aaron Callahan, or Court Carney, or Laura Tenchert, that I think uh, Rob Reginio, um, more and more, I don't just have a vague notion of an audience. I have a specific notion. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I'm writing to you guys. I feel like I'm writing to uh, not some invisible anonymous reader, but writing and thinking, oh, Jim will like that line. <laughs> or, oh, this will speak to Laura. Or, you know, so, um, um, yeah, I think that, that becoming more and more part of a community of Bob Dylan fans and scholars also helps me speak directly to those real human beings whose opinions I value um, and who I'm kind of writing for when I'm writing. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Yeah. I, part of the reason I ask that question is because you have a great sense of wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can be quite playful. You're, you're a very playful writer, and I love that. Mm. Um, I always crack up when I read your, your essays, <laughs> which, you know, I'll editorialize here. Most academic writing does not indulge. Fair, <laughs> fair. That. Um, you know, so, um, no, I think that's great. The first time I ever heard you give a Dylan paper yeah. was, um, I think, about six years ago at the Comparative Drama Conference. You had asked me to be on a panel, yep. and you it was with Rob Reginio, yep. which is where I met him, and you gave a paper that compared Tears of Rage to King Lear that blew me away, <laughs> and I'm really thrilled to see that you, you've worked that up into an article. Tell me tell me about that. Yeah, so, uh, well, it's, it's an article that's in the drawer. I, I don't know what I'll end up doing with it, but it's out there in the world, so I don't know if that'll be part of some larger future project, or maybe someone... Uh, out there listening, we'll put together a collection of essays on other intertextual dialogues between Dylan and literary figures, and maybe that could contribute to it. I, I, I don't know what the future holds for it, but anyway, and, and also, th that was 2016, I think. Yeah. Uh, so that was before uh, Andrew Muir's wonderful book on Dylan and Shakespeare. So now everything I write on that subject feels like a footnote uh, to his... To his uh, wonderful work, which I highly recommend. So I'm not the first person to have noticed this, and probably not even the hundredth person to have noticed it, but it 
seems like there are a lot of King Lear references in the basement tapes. Uh, especially on Tears of Rage, We Carried You in Our Arms on Independence Day. I, the, I, the image of a father carrying his daughter inevitably conjures up images for me of, of King Lear carrying Cordelia at the end, and others have noticed that uh, as well. Um, but all these references to nothingness as well, too much of nothing, nothing was delivered. This wheel's on fire, and that's an image uh, that uh, Lear uses when he has his reunion in late in Act 4, I guess it is, uh, with Cordelia. So, you know, it's too many references to just be a coincidence, that there's definitely a Lear subtext going on in the basement tapes. But then one of the things that, so, so that in and of itself would not have been anything terrifically original, though I think it's interesting enough. I love Shakespeare. He, he's, uh, after Bob Dylan, he is the individual author whose work I teach most. So uh, it was cool to put the two together, uh, those two loves together. But um, I think what really um, cemented the project for me was this recognition that at the same time, Dylan is losing his father's, his own father dies, you know, this untimely death of a heart attack, and around the same time, Woody Guthrie, his kind of musical, spiritual mentor and father dies. And so this theme, I think, uh, of atonement and forgiveness and coming to terms with uh, the loss of an ambivalent family member, which is so central to the play King Lear, I realize it's a central concern for Bob Dylan at the time, and it's making its way into his music. Uh, so those were the things I, I, I focused on in that conference paper and in the longer version, which I haven't published anywhere, but maybe we'll find a home someday somewhere. <laughs> well, I hope we do see it. Yeah. Um, it, sounds, it sounds really interesting. So you said that you love Dylan. It's a matter of the heart, but you're a Dylan scholar, right? And a rather good one. So how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, um, well, one of the good things, you get to a point in your career where you have, as a, as a professor, where you, you have a degree of autonomy and get to teach more or less what you want to teach. And so, thankfully, I never find myself in a position of having to choose one or the other, right? That, that what I love is the thing, then I have the freedom to develop into something teachable. Uh, if I think it is teachable. And in this case with Bob Dylan, not only is it that I love it, but I think that it is intellectually stimulating and significant on a lot of different levels and has all the hallmarks of the things, the great literature or great art that I love to teach in other contexts as well. And so it was a thrill and a privilege to get to create a class on Bob Dylan for a first-year seminar at Xavier. And I've kept teaching it, and it's been growing and evolving ever since then. And I learned so much from the students. You know, it's not just me as a priest up there dispensing wafers of wisdom about what all this means. It's a two-way street, and I learned so much from the students. And, 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 and I love exposing Bob Dylan to them at that age when they are essentially starting their journey of self-discovery, when he's at the same age, more or less, that he focuses on so much in Chronicles, right? And so it's, it, it really lends itself to a study. And I, I, so that my way of dodging the question is I don't feel the need to reconcile or choose between being a, a Dylan fan or a Dylan scholar uh, because I've 
found a way to be both at the same time. Well, let me ask an unfair question. <laughs> yeah. What if you had to choose? Yeah. If I had to choose, I'd choose fan, uh, right? Because even though I my synapses are are pulsing and crackling and snapping with ideas for Dylan and I still have lots of stuff that I'm working on now and I want to continue to work on and that's always very exciting when you're in the middle of a subject that you feel like you still have lots of things to say about and write about so that's cool but I was a fan before I ever reached that stage and I don't have to imagine what it's like to feel like you've finished that stage. I love Samuel Beckett in my way too I've written a whole lot about Beckett, and I don't think I'll ever stop completely writing about Beckett, but uh, the, I, I have reached points in my life where I think I'm, I'm, I have nothing left to say. I have nothing left to say on, on Samuel Beckett, and I'll you know hit save and send and think, well, that may be the last Samuel Beckett thing I ever write, and then something else will come up. So, um, but... You know, the idea that I, I, I definitely would never want to be at the stage where I'm out of ideas and things to write about Bob Dylan, and so I'm done with it. Because I'd still be a fan. I would still listen to the music. I'd still take great joy uh, out of and inspiration out of his work, even if I weren't adding lines to my Vita uh, along the way. So I'm going to ask you about that, the class. Yeah. Um, how do the students react to Dylan? You know, the, the, maybe the most interesting experiment I had with that was this last semester because there was a scheduling snafu and I was not initially scheduled to teach the first year seminar on Dylan. And then I was a late addition. So all of the students had already enrolled in the section and then it became a Bob Dylan section. So here's the case where no one, I mean, often it's only a minority of students who intentionally choose my class because it's on Bob Dylan. Most students, let's be realistic, you know, they've got lots of classes to take, there's a huge core curriculum at Xavier, they'll choose a class that fits well comfortably with their other classes and mine just will happen to meet that criteria. But here's a case where no one signed up because it was a Bob Dylan class. Um, and it turned out that none of them, none of them, were entering the class as Bob Dylan fans or knowing much about Dylan. Now that made it a challenge, <laughs> um, but it's a challenge I felt that Bob Dylan, and it's not even about me as much, I felt that Dylan was worthy of the challenge, that he will win some people along the way. And he'll turn people off, yes, the voice, yes, the, the ear-bleeding harmonica, <laughs> you know, all these, these things that they won't like about Dylan, and certainly there was that. But that taking such a deep dive on such an important artist uh, over 15 weeks and getting to see patterns emerge, right, and getting to appreciate the significance of major shifts uh, in his artistic sensibilities uh, at turning points in his life. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. And, you know, they start off as novices, but they become, by the end of the semester, really seasoned veterans in a single artist's work. And I think they're probably uh, proud of themselves by the end for having made that journey. And the resistance is always there. It never, it never uh, goes away. And yet it's very cool 
along the way to start seeing light bulbs go off and people starting to appreciate, oh, that is cool. It's like, yeah, actually, I, I do like that. And, um, and, and yeah, and then start all over again with a new batch of students the next, the next semester. So you teach it every semester? I teach it, sometimes I teach it every semester. I definitely teach it every year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, and you're, I, I, I owe you credit here, too, because before I, I started teaching it in 2015, but we met each other a bit before that at, regularly at the Comparative Drama Conference in Baltimore, and we would hang out, and we would sip scotch, or we'd have dinner, or we'd just talk between sessions. And I came to realize not only are you a fellow fan, but that you regularly taught a Bob Dylan class. And so when I started having the opportunity that I might be able to work one up myself, I picked your brain, and I think you even sent me uh, your syllabus, and... And so uh, you were one of those big early inspirations for teaching that class, too. So thank you, Jim. I have no memory of that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's entirely possible. <laughs> but that, that's good. Um, so tell me, tell me about what other music you enjoy. Oh, a lot. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, the predictable things that a Bob Dylan fan probably, you know, Dylan adjacent stuff from the golden age of rock. So I love the Beatles. I love the Stones. Love the Who. Love Led Zeppelin. Uh, I love those great singer-songwriters from the 60s and 70s and onward. Joni Mitchell is huge. Uh, Leonard Cohen, Van Morrison, um, and, and others who've carried that on you know I love I love uh, Steve Earle and Jason Isbell and uh, John Prine oh my god the great John Prine uh, Josh Ritter so people like that but it's not just people you know that would be obvious fellow loves for someone who's a Dylan fan I love Steely Dan I was listening to on the car ride uh, over to uh, meet you today uh, Jim I uh I love uh, I love lots of things. I love Blondie. I, you know, I, I I love Seattle grunge rock. I love I love the Wallflowers, Jacob Dylan, and that whole you know that whole sound, that era of music, uh, as well. And then I love just discovering new people and for a brief period becoming obsessed with them, like I recently did with the um, uh, singer songwriter. I I highly recommend Carsey Blanton. Check her out. She's good. I have not heard of Carsey Blanton. Yeah, yeah. Lucinda Williams, I should have mentioned her. She's also dependably awesome. Uh, yeah. What, what's the worst thing you listen to? <laughs> uh, you're turning the tables on me there because I vividly remember having a conversation with you and Aaron at the 2019 Tulsa uh, conference. And it felt like one of those bonding experiences, right? Uh, that... that um, you know, like in the mafia, you have to prove your loyalty by going and out whacking somebody because then not only are you loyal, but they've got something on you, some dirt <laughs> on you, right? And so we wandered down this conversational path at a bar in Tulsa. Um, it's like, well, what, what, what music are you embarrassed by? What are some things, what are your guilty pleasures, uh, music you love that you know you're not supposed to? Um, I don't think I ever got a good one from you, so I want to turn it around on you. But I, I, I increasing, I kept trying to impress you more and more with just how bad some of my musical taste is. I started off with Sheryl Crow, and I'm not embarrassed at all by that. I love Sheryl no. Crow. I love Sheryl That's Crow. Uh, and so, uh, but I know people who make me want to feel bad that I love Sheryl Crow, and I, they're wrong and I'm right. But anyway, and then I thought, okay, well that's not bad enough for you. How about Rod Stewart? 
I kind of like Rod Stewart. I like his voice. I like uh, what he does with uh, a lot of songs. And I might have got a cringe or two out of that. And then uh, you know, I just had to keep going worse and worse. So I, I put some ABBA in there, maybe some Bee Gees, some you know, some some uh, some old school disco. Um, we oh, we had at the most recent the Beats conference in Tulsa. We this became a thing that somehow. Billy Joel got mentioned, and uh, and I made the mistake of saying, oh yeah, Billy Joel's all right. <laughs> I can sing along with a lot of Billy Joel songs. Oh, it was like a dog pile had descended on. It looked like something out of Charlie Brown, you know, with the dust after I get gang tackled here, uh, with all the Billy Joel haters I was surrounded by there. So apparently, it's not okay to like Billy Joel. No, it's out of the question. <laughs> yeah. I heard Aaron mention uh, Jimmy Buffett, and I, I I like lots of Jimmy Buffett songs. I've seen him in concert multiple times. I can sing along with a lot of his stuff. So I'll admit, just like Bob Dylan, that I like Jimmy Buffett too. So yeah, if that's if that's wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And I should add here too that Bob Dylan has really played a uh, an integral role in expanding my musical appreciation. Not just with stuff I never would have heard had I not been trying to follow up with what Bob Dylan covers or plays or is influenced by, you know, old uh, folk music and blues artists. But also, this is a guy who is not a music snob. This is a guy who openly and unironically admits he loves Jimmy Buffett, who, who collaborates with Michael Bolton, you know, who... Uh, and so I think it's, it's interesting that a lot of times Dylan fans... Have, have very refined taste, and I don't get that sense from Dylan himself, who seems to be have very Catholic liberal tastes and can like all sorts of music. So we should be more like Bob. <laughs> well, that's a that's a great place to end. Actually, so. <laughs> okay. Really, thank you. It's great yeah. to see you in person. You're welcome. We are shaking hands we here. Shaking. Uh, we should have a video. It's a, we should. And that we we are we are off to go see the Orioles beat the Reds. Oh, oh a rematch of the nineteen seventy World Series. If only uh, that seventies Reds team would walk onto the field, I think we would have a better shot tonight. I don't know; they're a little old. <laughs> yeah, true. Grayley's wearing his Johnny Bench T-shirt, so here we are. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thank you very much, and we're off to baseball. All right, play ball. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed. Wondering if she had changed at all, if her hair was still red. Her folks, they said our lives together sure was going to be rough. They never did like Mama's homemade dress. Papa's bank book wasn't big enough. Thank you for listening to the Dillantons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive the Dillantons directly to your inbox. And please share on social media.